Let's pray together. Father, because of your sheer grace, many of us this morning can say we have Christ. We have salvation in Christ. We have forgiveness of sins. In him we have eternal life. In him we have all the riches of your grace in him. He is an all-sufficient Savior. Every need we have is met in him. And so we give you thanks this morning that he is now ours and he is ours forever. And I pray for anyone who is here this morning or listening online who doesn't have Christ. Lord, nothing less than a miracle of your grace can bring them to him. And so we ask that you would do that, that you would work in hearts and that don't know Christ and draw them to the Savior as the only one who can rescue and change a life and an eternity. Lord, your word says, unless the, that you build the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless you guard the city, they watch over it in vain. And Lord, we know unless you work this morning here and work over at the retreat, our time together will be in vain. We won't have anything really worth having done. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be poured out on us. He would work in us. That you would cause us to hear your word in a fresh way. Maybe it's a very familiar text to some, but Lord, that it would just have a deeper impact than it maybe has had before. That it would uh, make a difference in how we live our walk with you this week. So we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. In any given week, we might tell someone or someone might tell us, don't worry. It might be a parent reassuring a child that everything will be okay. Or maybe a coworker promising to take care of a problem at work. Or maybe a friend encouraging us not to fret about the what-ifs of the future. In our text for today, Jesus himself reminds us that we don't need to worry. And he gives us some good reasons why anxiety is unnecessary. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 12. As we continue the passage we started last Sunday, you may remember that Jesus is teaching his followers that there are some things we don't need to worry about. We don't need to worry about what people can do to us or what we will say to defend ourselves if we're brought before the authorities before for our faith. And there are some things we should be concerned about we should be concerned about having an appropriate fear of God. We should be aware of the subtle threat of hypocrisy. 
And we should be on guard against the dangers of covetousness. And to illustrate how serious coveting is, Jesus tells a story about a man who had such a huge harvest that he thought he was all set for a long time. But he ended up dying that very night without a relationship with God. So he was a success in the world's eyes, but a fool in God's eyes. He was rich in material things, but he was spiritually bankrupt. And right after telling that story, Jesus says in verse 22 of Luke chapter 12, Jesus said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life. So what is the connection between the parable of the rich fool and Jesus telling us as his followers, for this reason, don't be anxious about your life or therefore do not worry about your life. And here's one possible link. Maybe you can think of others. But one would be the problem with the man that was coming to Jesus and telling him to intervene about his inheritance and the problem with the rich farmer in Jesus' story is they were both worried about how they were going to provide for their future needs. And they completely left God out of the equation. And it is all too possible for those who follow Christ to worry about whether our future needs will be met and to leave God out of our thinking. So coveting is a hard attitude that says, I don't have enough, I need more, fill in the blank, and God is not even factored in. And anxiety is a heart that says, I'm worried, I won't have enough, how will I get, fill in the blank, and all too often forgets to take God into account. One definition I came across at the beginning of the whole COVID thing was, Anxiety is imagining the future without Jesus in it. Anxiety is imagining the future, trying to project what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. What's going to happen and leaving Jesus out of that scenario. So, of course, you'd be worried. <laughs> and I'd be worried. But here's just something really encouraging. Jesus cares about us. And he doesn't want our hearts to be troubled by the heavy burden of worrying. And I think it's fair to say just about all of us know what that feels like. It's not a pleasant thing. It's not what we want to do. It's a burden. And so, because he loves us, he graciously encourages us by reminding us of some reasons why anxiety is unnecessary. So first, back in Luke 12, it distorts our perspective on life. So let's reread verse 22. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Why? Or why not? For life 
is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Jesus already told us back in verse 15 that even when one has an abundance, his life does not consist of his possessions. In other words, that's not what life is all about. Contrary to what the world tells us all week long, getting and having a lot of stuff is not the main point of life. And here he is telling us there's much more to life than basic necessities like food and clothing. The point of our existence is not just physical survival or physical well-being or physical comfort. There's something much more important than just having something to eat and something to wear. And he'll get to that, what that is that's more important a few verses later. But first of all, worry distorts our perspective on life. Second, it disregards the providence of God. And by providence, we mean God's constant care for and his absolute rule over all of his creation. And so Jesus urges us to consider the ravens. And the word consider means stop and think a minute and take special notice and pay attention to something. So what conclusion are we supposed to come to by observing big black crows? And every week I have the opportunity to look out the window and there are usually huge black crows getting garbage the middle school kids left <laughs> from whatever. So I get to have this object lesson on a regular basis. So what are we supposed to learn by observing crows? And he tells us they don't sow or reap like farmers. They don't have barns or storehouses like the rich fool I just told you about. But they aren't worried about where their next meal is coming from. Why not? Because God feeds them. And so back in Job 38, you don't have to turn to it. Job 38, 41 says, Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? And the answer is God does that. You weren't thinking about the ravens this week. You weren't caring about whether the crows had lunch or not. God makes sure they eat. And then Jesus wants us to think through what that means. You are much more valuable than birds, he says. Therefore, if God feeds his creatures, how much more can we depend on him to feed his children? Jesus gives another example of looking to God's providence. Skip down to verse 27 and 28. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? So here's the same line of reasoning we saw with the ravens. Stop and think about the beauty of the lilies. They don't toil, they don't spin, they don't worry about what they're going to wear. And yet God clothes them with more beauty than Solomon ever had in all his royal splendor. 
And so again, he argues from lesser to greater. If God clothes the flowers of the fields that only last a little while, how much more can we trust him to clothe his children? Third, worry doesn't do any good. Verse 25 and 26. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single cubit is the words, and it goes both ways, but let's just say cubit, to his life. And some have span and stature. So worry doesn't do any good. It can't or doesn't accomplish anything. It's unable to do a very little thing like adding a cubit to our lives. Now, a cubit is 18 inches from here to here, roughly. And it could mean you can't add 18 inches to your height to make yourself taller. So if you want to play basketball and you're only five and a half foot tall, and you could add 18 inches to that, you'd be seven foot tall. But you can't get there by worrying. <laughs> the other way to take it, they both are true, is you can't add even a small amount of time to how long you live. In fact, <laughs> probably you've seen something to the effect worrying actually takes time off your life. <laughs> it's not good for us. It's bad for our physical and mental health. But either way Jesus meant the Cuba thing, no matter how much or how long we worry about something, it doesn't change a thing. We don't want to waste our time and emotional energy on something that's completely unproductive. Fourth, worry displays an unbelief that is no different from the world. Verse 28. The end of it says, O men or O ye of little faith, and do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. So to doubt that God will take care of our needs, not just food, not just clothing, what we drink, all of our needs, to doubt that is to be a person of little faith. To worry about and eagerly seek after what we will eat or drink is to be just like the nations who don't even know God. But we have a Father in heaven who knows that we need these things. So if you're, turn over to Matthew 7. In this verse, um, in Sunday school, we talked about how you can read the Bible over and over again and, and you see something new or fresh. And these verses just had a, a massively new impact on me after I became a father. Um, I'd read them before, knew the verse, but now that I'm a dad and I have a little girl that I'm very committed to, these verses, it's like, wow. So... Read along with me, Matthew 7, starting at 9. What man is there among you who, when his son or daughter asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? And then listen to the conclusion. If you then, being evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how? Much more will your Father in heaven 
give what is good to those who ask him. If even evil fathers give good gifts like edible food to their hungry children, if even sinful, imperfect parents take care of the basic needs of their kids, how much more can we trust that our Heavenly Father, who loves us perfectly, more than the best dad in the world ever loved his kids or the best mom in the world ever loved their kids. He loves us perfectly. How much more can we trust our Heavenly Father to provide us with everything that his perfect wisdom sees that we really need? So I remember after reading that verse, like, if God is committed to me just at the level I'm committed to my daughter's need, I've got it made. I should never worry again. I have plenty of times. But I, I don't need to. Jesus says, okay, you're a dad. You know what it's like to take care of your kids' needs. The Father in heaven's infinitely better than you are at taking care of his needs, the needs of his children. Fifth and last, worry distracts us from seeking the kingdom. So back in Luke 12, 31 and 32. But, so here's a contrast. The nations of the world who don't know God are busy seeking what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, and all the stuff of the world. Contrast to seeking that, but seek his kingdom, as in the Father's kingdom. And these things, like what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, and everything else you need, these things will be added to you. And then he says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your, <clears throat> your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. If we are busy chasing after the same things the world is chasing after, and again, all week long we have messages, all the advertising in the world is chase this, get this, have this, buy this, go after these things. The world's telling us this is what's important. If we're worried about all the same things the world is all worried about, we won't have time and energy that we need to seek what's more important than the things of this earth, namely the kingdom. We're called to seek the kingdom. So what does that mean? Let's start with the word seek. Seek means look for something or pursue something until you get it. So if most of us have lost keys or a phone or a wallet, jewelry, kids, <laughs> right? <laughs> and especially on the last one, you don't say, oh, well, I guess we'll just go without it. You hunt very diligently until you find what's missing. It matters to you, and so you make it a priority. You're serious about it, and therefore actively devote the time and effort necessary to get it back in your possession. That's what it means to seek. So it's not a lazy, passive, just sit back, 
wait for something to happen kind of thing. It's a very active, intense pursuit. Well, what's the kingdom? And if you're reading the New Testament, you're seeing that word all the time. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about? And here's how I would describe it. God is the rightful king over all people in the whole world. So, for example, Psalm 47 says, verse 1 and 2, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. Why? For the Lord most high is to be feared. We saw that last week. A great king over all the earth. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. So God is the creator of the earth. He's the owner of the earth. He's the rightful ruler of the earth and everyone in it, including you and me. Which means all people everywhere owe him their glad allegiance and their willing obedience. But everyone who's ever lived, including all of us, have rebelled against his rule. We don't want him to be our king. We want to be our own king. We want to call the shots. We want to be the final authority in our lives. And so that's a problem. The kingdom is reclaiming rebels like us and bringing us into a right relationship with the king. So the kingdom is having a right relationship with the king along with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of that relationship with the king. So that would include things like, I have access to the king's presence. I can enjoy the king's protection and his care. Those are the privileges and rights. And responsibilities would include submitting to the king's authority in every area of my life. My work life, my home life, my free time, everything. He's the king. He calls the shots. I follow him. So here's the language Paul uses in Colossians chapter 1. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain or the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we used to be part of the kingdom of darkness but he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9. So now, by his grace, we are part of the kingdom of Jesus. We weren't before, now we are. Now God is our father. And so Jesus says, seek his kingdom, or seek God's kingdom. And first of all, the first step of that would be make sure you're right with the king. And if God is showing you you are not in his kingdom, you're still in the other kingdom, acknowledge, first of all, I am a guilty rebel. I have dishonored and disobeyed God as my rightful king. 
Psalm 130 says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should keep track of violations and disobedience, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is, none of us could. We're all guilty before God. Second, turn from your rebellion against his authority and turn from attempting to do anything that would try to make up for your sin by anything you could do as if you could earn it or deserve it in some way. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, By grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves or your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's a free gift. It's not a work. You can't work for it. You can't achieve it. The reason God designed it that way is so no one could boast. So it's all of God, all of grace, all of gift. has nothing to do with what you bring to the table and contribute. It's a free gift received by faith. And so that's the last thing is by faith we trust Christ alone to forgive our sins and restore us to God. We believe his death on the cross paid the full penalty that we deserve to pay for our sin and rebellion against God. It's the only way it can get paid. And we believe that his resurrection from the dead shows that he is the only one God has sent to be the complete remedy for our ruin in sin. Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Saved means rescued from sin and brought to God. No other name, no other way. It's only Jesus. And so if you've never trusted in Christ before, trust him today. And for those who are right with the king because of Jesus and now know him as father because of Jesus, Jesus makes two reassuring promises. The first one is, if we seek God's kingdom, if we pursue the kingdom as our priority and pray your kingdom come and actively engage in spreading his reign to others, God will take care of adding all the other things to us. You know, we don't have to worry about pursuing those other things. We pursue the first priority. God promises, I'll take care of all, that, all the rest. He already knows we need those things. Jesus told us that. He knows we need them before we even ask. And he will give them to us. We don't have to worry about them. He will see to it that we have everything that we need. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. Aim at heaven. That's what's eternal. That's what lasts forever. Don't settle for the short-term stuff of this life and miss heaven. You, you, you miss out on both. You won't get this earth and you won't get the next world. Aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Seek the kingdom, all these things will be added. And the other encouraging promise is in verse 32. Let me read it again. It's just a beautiful verse. Do not be afraid, little flock. Why not? For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Jesus very tenderly calls us little flock. 
So sometimes when my kids were little and they were nervous about something, I'd say, fear not, little flock. Stealing right out of this verse. It's like, it's going to be okay. But little flock is a very tender term. It's not fear not, you dummies. It's not fear not, you low faith people. I mean, it's not scolding us. He's comforting us. I know you're just a little flock. You're like a bunch of little sheep, little lambs. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Because your gracious heavenly Father has gladly chosen to give you freely the kingdom. It's his good pleasure to do that. We don't earn it. We don't pay for it. It's simply a gift of his great generosity. And if it's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom, then we never need to worry about him taking care of everything else we need. It's the same way Paul argues in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? So most of you know by now our son Caleb got engaged a month or so ago, gave Michaela a diamond ring, and just for the sake of this illustration, what if Michaela said, do you think I could keep the box that this came in? You know how much the box cost compared to the diamond? <laughs> Small potatoes. If Caleb already spent the money for the diamond ring, of course you can have a little box. If God loved us enough to give us Jesus and give us all the blessings of salvation in Jesus, of course we can count on him for the little stuff like food and clothing and all the other physical needs we have in this life. And someday, we will hear these joy-producing words from Jesus himself. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So that's what's coming. Seek that, which is already a gift, and which you will get later, that was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. You weren't even born yet. And it, that will be fulfilled. And if Jesus is going to fulfill that big promise, how much more can we count on him to fulfill the little promises like you don't have to worry about your, the daily stuff of life. So as we close, just a couple more verses that I think can help us in the fight of fight against anxiety. Remember the connection, oh, ye of little faith or men of little faith. So this Anxiety thing and faith are connected, and the way they're connected is it's a fight of faith to believe what God promises instead of believing what our feelings are telling us or what the circumstances are telling us. So here's two verses. If you're anxious about a health concern for yourself or a loved one, or you're concerned about are we going to have enough money, you know, if inflation keeps going up, or in retirement, or we're going to have enough resources, or whatever else it is about the future that makes you feel uneasy and unsettled. Here's two great verses. First is Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. Instead of anxiety, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the other one is 1 Peter 5, 7. Just a short little verse, but just something you can hang on to, and I can hang on to. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. If he is taking care of us, then there won't be anything that we need left out. He cares for us. He really cares. He really cares about us and for us. So notice these texts do not promise we'll never have any anxious thoughts, because we do. It doesn't promise we'll be exempt from anything that might cause us to feel a sense of worry. What they're telling us is that when we do experience those anxious thoughts and those anxious feelings, to cast them on the Lord. Don't try to carry it yourself. It's a burden. Cast it on him. Roll it over on him. Lord, I can't handle this. I don't want to handle this. You said you'd be willing and able to do it, so I'm giving it to you, Lord. You take care of it because you care for me. So the bottom line is we can always come up with some reasons to worry. I could come up with a list right now for my life. I could come up with a list for you. There's plenty of stuff to worry about. But this text is saying Jesus has even better reasons why anxiety is unnecessary. So let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you that you care enough about us that you don't want us as your children to be burdened with anxious thoughts and cares and worries. As earthly parents, we don't want our kids worried about stuff that we've told them we'll take care of. And Lord, we want to believe by your grace you're an even better father than any earthly parent could ever be and that you are as good as your word, you're faithful, so you will provide everything we need when we need it, and we can just always trust you to do that. I pray again for anyone who doesn't know you as their father, who hasn't bowed to you as their king, who isn't in your family, Lord, that they would be called by your spirit this morning to call on Jesus as the only one who can rescue them. It's in his name we pray. Amen.